0: It is wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Welcome. And if you're a guest with us today, we're, we're delighted that you've chosen to worship with us. If you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're thrilled that you are joining us as well. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring this idea of live like God owns everything. Now, uh, if you're new, you probably don't recognize that. But if you're here as a part of this family, you should recognize that as one of our values. That's not to suggest that if God owns everything, then we should live like it. There's no if in this. God owns everything. Therefore, we should live like it. That we should constantly respond with that truth in mind. Need a little convincing? Let me take you to the Psalms this morning. Just a couple passages out of Psalms. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness uh, thereof. Or, as sometimes we have it in the New International, and everything In it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50 verses 9 through 12. I have no need. This is God speaking now, by the way, through the psalmist. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Okay, if God owns everything, then why do we give? Every week that blue offering bag comes down my row and I feel compelled to put something in it or at least act like I'm putting something in it. But if God owns everything, why give? It's a good question. I like this video between a father and his young daughter as they explore that very idea. Watch it.
1: Okay, maybe we need to go over this one more time. Do we have to? Well, sweetie, I don't know if you're getting a good grasp of the ratios here. Fine. Okay, all right, step by step. Before we spend any money, what's the first thing that we do? Give to God. Good, and why do we do that? Because he first loved and gave to us. Good, 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 good. Okay, great. Now, the second jar here is for so many different things. Hold on. What? God? He lives in heaven, right? Yeah, he lives in heaven. And heaven has streets paved with gold, white Streets paved with gold, sure, yes. So why does he need my money if I don't even have a job? (laughs) Okay, all right, so good question. So basically when we give to God, we're, we're given to the church. So the church gives the money to God? No, the church keeps the money. Oh, does God know about this? (laughs) yes he uh, basically built the system yeah okay good okay see sweetie as you grow up there is nothing better than giving back to God in the Bible it's the only place God says test me on this when it comes to your money he says test me it's almost like he's saying I dare you and your mom and I we do just that even when things are tough we always give the first part of our money back to God. And then the church takes that money and does all kinds of things to make God famous, uh, like camps and mission trips and even VBS that you love so much and even helps out people that are in need. You can't outgive God. And when God says test and you do it, he will come through every single time. Okay then I get it. I do have one question though. Oh, okay. Why do we need it to test God if he already knows all the answers? That's that's good. Let me just retrace my steps here just for a minute. <sighs>
0: It's really a good question, isn't it? If God owns everything, why give? Well, to answer that question, let me take you to a well-worn passage of Scripture in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, 42. This is the passage right after the church begins. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, this is the first verse, folks, in Scripture to describe those who have just been baptized, the 3,000 that were baptized on the day that Peter preached and the church began. Uh, When Elsie and I were in Israel with several of the families from the church here, we stood uh, and walked on the steps leading up to the ancient temple grounds and wall uh, where this would have happened. Uh, you, you, you know, these are the original steps. They're still, still there where we're sitting. And that was, that was the place where Peter would have stood on the day of Pentecost and preached to the people uh, the gospel for the very first time. And, you know, 3,000 were baptized afterwards. Well, down below are these mikvahs, which are ritual cleansing baths. There were dozens of them down below the steps. And you can see deep down in there, the steps going down into them, those would have been filled with water. That's probably where the 3,000 were baptized in, in, in all these baths along in there it was I don't I don't know how everybody else felt but I know standing there where the church began was a really moving moment for me and these are the first words to describe those new believers in Christ they devoted devoted means possessing a single-minded focus in other words you don't ever veer off course you are doggedly determined you will let nothing deter you from your relationship with Jesus Christ now three of the devotional areas mentioned here are pretty clear one not so much We understand the importance of Scripture. That's the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to that. We understand the Lord's Supper that we participated in just a few minutes ago. They were devoted to that. And prayer. We understand the power of prayer. They were devoted to that. But fellowship? (laughs) When you ask somebody what fellowship is, they will more than likely, if they're in the church at least, will say, well, that's probably when you sit down in that big room at the other end of the hall and you eat a meal together. I mean, after all, it's called fellowship hall. So that's what fellowship is. And generally, that's the way we use the term today. But we have so lessened the value of that word. The concept of fellowship in Scripture involved three words, partnership, stewardship, and suffering. And it was a secular word long before it ever entered, Scripture, It was used to describe two people who went into business together. For instance, uh, two, two families or two people buy a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they go into a fishing business. You're in it with equal determination to make it succeed. That's a partnership. You're in it with committed resources. That's stewardship. And you're in it with faithful perseverance, sticking together when things get tough or when the business goes south. That's the suffering part. Now, take the boat and the fishing business out of the equation and insert the Lord in his church. True fellowship means that we are equal partners together with him and with one another, that we have committed our resources of time, talent, and money to this venture, that we will stick together in the kingdom through thick and thin, suffering together for him and with him. Now, that's a whole lot more than a dinner at the opposite end of the building. But that's the key of why the church was so powerful in its early days, because they understood what fellowship was. So let's go back to the question. Why give? Because God set the bar high. He has led by example. Folks, God never asks us to do anything but what he hasn't already been there and done that having set the example for us to follow. He lived out and demonstrated every aspect of this word fellowship for us. God chose, first of all, to partner with us in this world so that he could change our eternal standing. And he chose to pay the price to steward with us, to pay the price that we could not pay for our salvation. And he chose to suffer death on a cross, making the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have life everlasting. That's what fellowship is all about. It changes our whole understanding when we understand what the Lord did for us because we couldn't do it. We needed somebody who could overcome in the 19th century, Dr. Felix Roux, a Jewish doctor in Paris, worked with Louis Pasteur, who uh, was trying to prove his germ theory. Now, the Paris medical community thought it was a bunch of uh, bunk, and so they really kind of disassociated themselves with him. And so Louis Pasteur and Dr. Roux went out into the forest around Paris, set up a makeshift laboratory out there to continue their research. Dr. Rue's granddaughter had died of black diphtheria which was almost always a death sentence uh, when people got the disease and he was determined to find out what could be what could be discovered that would form a cure for this black diphtheria and so they brought out to their laboratory in the forest 20 strong healthy horses they swabbed the, the nostrils Uh, the mouth, the gums, the tongue, and the eyes with black diphtheria germs sat back and watched. Nineteen of the 20 horses got fevers and died pretty quickly. The 20th horse got sick, was down, almost out, but then began to rally. And before long, the horse was back on its feet, able to eat and drink strong as it was before. At that point, Dr. Roux took a sledgehammer, hit the horse right between its eyes and killed it. The scientists then drained all the blood out of the horse, rushed to the hospital in Paris, where 300 children suffering with black diphtheria had been segregated into a ward by themselves just to wait to die. And they took the blood of that horse that had overcome the disease and they inoculated every one of those 300 children. And out of the 300, all but three survived and grew into adulthood. As they grew and learned the story, the truth of their lives What do you think their response should have been? Apathy or indifference? I don't think so. Should they have been angered that the horse was killed? No. Or should they have been filled with deep gratitude that they had been the recipient of a gift of life in the face of certain death? Who wouldn't among that 300 be filled with gratitude beyond words? Folks, I want you to know that we have been saved from something far worse than black diphtheria. We've been saved from our sins by the blood of the ultimate overcomer. What's more, it is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ when we come to him as Lord and Savior. So what should our response be to such an incredible gift? Should it be apathy and indifference? I don't think so. Or should it be a life lived with deepest gratitude? And and how do we say thank you to God? I mean, if somebody gives you a nice gift, uh, at the very minimum, we ought, we ought to respond with a thank you note. By living in fellowship with Him is part of our. Thank you to God. By living in fellowship with him. Now remember what that means. It means that we are partners with him. We are stewards with him. We are fellow sufferers with him. If we're grateful for what God has done for us, and if we believe others who do not know about salvation in Christ need to know about salvation in Christ, then shouldn't we invest in the only work in the world whose dividends are paid in heaven? The Macedonian Christians understood it. They got it. Let me take you to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. This offering organized by the apostle Paul was a thank you note of sorts to the church in Jerusalem that was now famine plagued and under persecution because you see the church, the Christians in Jerusalem had sent Paul and his mission team to Macedonia with the message of the gospel. And these Macedonians were so grateful. They were so thankful for what God had done that they took up an offering to send back now to the struggling church in Jerusalem. Uh, Historians think it probably was an offering that lasted for about five years. And while Macedonia was probably economically sound, it wasn't so for the Christians. They were under persecution, and so they they had to dig deep to be able to do that. Ten times in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, ten times, Paul refers to grace. Grace means a gift that makes glad. We usually refer to it as the gift of salvation. But in this context, Paul is using it about the gift of their sharing, the gift that sustained and encouraged those other believers. In this context, let me ask a couple questions. And let's look at a couple things. First thing we're going to look at is how they gave. And the first part is out of severe trial. As I mentioned, they were under persecution, but that didn't matter to them. They were digging deep, and they were giving out of that, and it says they were joy-filled for being able to give. Now, when's the last time you experienced that? When you gave something to the body of Christ, you gave something back to God, you gave something to help somebody else, you gave something to a missionary, and you felt this wave of joy come over you for giving something away. That's, that's the joy they, they, they were experiencing. A.W. Tozer wrote, he said, gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God. And it is one that the poorest of all of us can make and be not poor but richer for having made it. And the word generosity here really comes from the word for plain or simple, suggesting that their gifts overflowed from the simplest and the purest of motives. They gave out of severe trial. And they gave more than they were able. That's just something I'm always fascinated that sometimes we we see ourselves limited. But when God, when we give out of the right motives, when we do the right thing, I think God enables us to do more than we possibly imagine we could do. Paul says that the Macedonian Christians begged. They begged for the opportunity to give an offering. We usually use beg in the opposite context of somebody begging for themselves. But the Macedonians beg for the privilege of giving. In 45 years of preaching, I've never had anybody beg me to take up an offering. I've never had anybody ask to take up an offering, let alone beg. That's just not our nature. But but if it were our nature, if we saw blessing others and the kingdom of God uh, you know, it just might change our attitudes. Because, see, here's the key. Paul says also, they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's the key. When when you belong to the Lord and you know that everything belongs to Him, it's not a burden then to share. And it's not just about giving, it's about the whole concept of stewardship. By the way, stewardship doesn't mean giving. Stewardship, that may be one aspect of stewardship, but stewardship is managing what God has entrusted to us. Here's, here's the deal, folks. If everything belongs to God, if God owns everything, and he does, it's not an if like, well, maybe he doesn't. The point is, what we have, everything that we have, really belongs to him. So how are we using, managing, that's stewardship. Managing what God has entrusted to us. Okay, here, so here's a question. Why should I give? Well, because it's a command. At its very simplest, giving is an act of obedience, and the Bible does not leave us guessing about its importance. There are 38 verses on communion, 77 on baptism, 246 mention faith, but 558 are on the subject of money, riches, wealth, possessions, goods, and inheritance. A preacher friend of mine, Jeff Fall, who preaches up in Mooresville, Indiana, has kept this bit of wisdom through the years, and I really like it too. The three subjects Jesus spoke most often about were wealth, hypocrisy, and the kingdom of God. Three of the Ten Commandments deal with wealth. 16 of the 38 parables in the New Testament deal with money and stewardship. That's nearly half. One verse out of every six in the Gospels deal with stewardship. The New Testament devotes 16 times as much Scripture to what Jesus taught about stewardship as to what he taught about baptism and 32 times as much as to what he taught about the Lord's Supper. God knows that the welfare and the destiny of a man's soul is reflected in his attitude toward money. At the very least, it's commanded. Now, I always feel like I should say something that, you know, if you're a guest this morning, oh, here it goes, preachers always talking about money. You ask anybody around here, it's been over a year since I've even talked about this subject. But based on the parables, if Jesus was your preacher, you'd get it every other Sunday. (laughs) Now, Now, the point of that is simply this. Jesus knew how dangerous this area of subject was. And and how many temptations we face face as a result of it. So why should I get? Well, because there's a need. You look around you. You don't have to look far, but look around you. And the needs are just absolutely overwhelming. We had a contingent um, from this congregation at the International Conference on Missions in Kansas City this week. Uh, I got home uh, real late on Friday night from a couple days there. uh, But I was blown away by the number of ministries and missions that are doing fabulous works around the world, but all of them in need because of the gospel. The gospel needs to get as far and wide as it possibly can. The needs, there's no shortage of needs, is what I'm trying to say. So why should I give? Because the needs are great. Can can I ask you this? One of these days when when you're walking the courts of heaven and you run into a friend who is there that you know, came to know Christ because of what you gave and what other Christians gave so that the gospel could be preached. Will you regret anything you ever gave to Jesus Christ? Of course not. Everything here gets left behind. The only thing that matters in heaven is who is there, not what is there. And why why should I give? Because I need the discipline uh, why is there so much about money and stewardship and giving in the Scriptures? Is because Jesus knew that more than anything else, we have a hard time letting go. That the things that draw us to this world hold us to this world, and sometimes it's just difficult. This is not to be taken lightly. It was a problem in the Old Testament. It's a problem in the New Testament. It's a problem now. It always will be. We like things, and letting go is hard for us. So, what should I give? Well, here's a simple plan, 10, 10, 80 plan. You've probably heard of this before. Uh, It's a simple reminder, but it takes great discipline to complete. The first 10% goes to God. That's a biblical, that's a biblical principle, folks, that predates the Mosaic law. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And the Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. Whether we give it or not, it's the Lord's. Now, What is a tithe? (laughs) One lady asked the question. She said, what is all this tithing business in Scripture? It's not tithing. It's tithing, all right? And it means giving back to God the first 10% of what we earn. Okay? now uh, People will be quick to say, yes, but the New Testament doesn't say anything about tithing. Well, it does say some things about tithing, but it doesn't command us to tithe. The the New Testament commands us to be generous. But I got to tell you this. I just don't see God expecting less of us on this side of the cross who see the whole picture put together than he sees from those who lived before the cross. You know, I think God says generosity in the New Testament so that if we're capable of giving more, we'll give more. We're not locked into just a 10%. And I realized this morning, if you've never given to that level, you can't just step it up. But it is something that we can start working toward. I think it's a great goal. I learned how to tithe when I had a paper route. When I was in junior high, can I tell you all these years later? I have never seen God fail when we are faithful in our giving. Um, I know it's a matter of trust, but boy, it's a matter of His great promises. You, it's true. What the dad told his daughter in that video is true. You cannot outgive. God. Now that doesn't mean if you put a $10 bill in the plate this morning and you go home, you'll get a check in the mail tomorrow for 20. It, it, it doesn't work that way. But God's blessings, the way God provides and cares for us, uh, you, you can't put a price tag on God's blessings. I, I just know you can't outgive him. God won't let you do that. The second 10% is for us to save. We as a nation are some of the poorest savers in the world. And here's the magic of saving. If a 22-year-old would invest $2,000 per year in a mutual fund that averaged 8.5% interest, by the time he reached 65, he'd have nearly a million dollars. He would have invested $86,000, it would be worth a million dollars. There's, there's the magic of savings. Proverbs 21:20 20 says, "...in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man just devours all he has." The New Living Translation puts it like this. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. The rest of the 80% is to be used carefully to live on. So let's consider some other biblical principles about living on the 80%. Here's the first one. Be careful with debt. Avoid the debt trap. I am ever so grateful that this congregation decided a few years ago that we were going to get out of debt and, and that happened. God blessed and we are not in debt as a congregation. I think that is awesome. I will be forever grateful for the sacrifices that we all made together to make that possible. But Christian Financial Concepts reported that the typical American spends $1.10 for every dollar they earn. A dollar and a dime for every dollar that you earn. That's hard to keep up that pace for any length of time. You realize that? That's descriptive of a culture that doesn't do a good job of saving. America's rate of bankruptcy today is nearly as high as it was back in the Great Depression of the 1930s and and we need to stop wasting what we do have according to research Americans spend more on gambling than on cars and houses combined four out of five Americans owe more than they own 40% borrow more than they can make monthly payments on. The average American family is three weeks away from bankruptcy. According to Social Security, 85 out of 100 Americans have less than $250 in cash by the time they reach age 65. The average American gives less than 2% to charitable institutions. The average church member gives a mere 2.5%. It really doesn't make a lot of difference whether you are in the body or you're not in the body. We're not real great with our sharing. Approximately 50% of all... Divorces are caused by or related to financial pressures in the home. The most secretive and sensitive subject in most marriages is not intimacy, it's finances. In a recent high school poll, students uh, in high school, only 72% knew that credit cards were a form of borrowing. Four out of 10 didn't know that banks charged interests on loans. Now, here's a wild thought for you. Let's say you buy something for $2,000 and you put it on a credit card uh, and you don't do anything with those payments except pay the minimum. At 19.8% interest on that credit card, how long will it take you to pay off a $2,000 credit card bill if you only pay the minimum payment when the monthly bill comes? Ready for this? It'll take you 32 years. And you will spend $10,000 to pay off a $2,000 purchase. We need to be careful with the debt. Romans 13.8 says, Let no debt remain except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Here's something else. Keep good records of what you have. You know, it's really hard to be responsible to God if you don't know what you've got. Uh, and, and so the scriptures teach us in Proverbs 27, be sure, you know, the condition of your flocks, give careful attention to your herds for riches do not endure forever. And a crown is not secure for all generations. In other words, how are you going to use what you've got? How are you going to be able to answer to God as a steward of what he entrusted to you? If you don't have a record of what you, what you've got, what he's given to you. If we understood our condition better, we would use our resources more wisely. (laughs) Somebody put it this way. When your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. (laughs) Know what's going on. How should I give? Well, with a mature attitude. Maturity comes as we live life by its highest motives. God loves a cheerful giver. God will take money from a grouch, but he also (laughs) would rather have a cheerful giver. Gifts that are prompted by guilt are still used in the kingdom of God. They still do good work. But the giver misses all of the joy when it's a gift out of guilt. God wants us to give out of love and thanks. And when we give as an expression of our love and our gratitude, God can say, my, how my children are maturing. How should I give? Well, with a trusting attitude. With a trusting. Trust God. You, you can't outgive him. Trust him. <laughs> I like the story about the guy that reached into his billfold. Wasn't paying too close attention as the offering plate came down the row. And he dropped in a 50 when he intended to put in a 5. As the plate got past him, he noticed it was a 50. And he looked in his billfold. And sure enough, there was the 5. He just goes into a panic after the service. He's complaining to his wife. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I was so stupid. Why could I have not paid more closer attention? I didn't want to put in the 50. I just wanted to put in the 5. She finally became exasperated and said, sweetheart, don't worry about it. God will just give you credit for the five anyway. (laughs) Because you see, it's the attitude that makes the difference with God. It's the attitude. How should I give? With contentment. You will never earn contentment, but you can learn contentment. Proverbs 30, verse seven and following. And I'll close with this. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Here's the first. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Here's the second. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become too poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Lord, I trust you. Just give me what I need so I will honor you with my heart and attitude. Folks, someday, someday the king is coming and when he does, what's here will not matter anymore. What's there, who's there, will mean everything. What are you laying up? in heaven. What treasures are you laying up in heaven for someday? Because you invest now, some will be in heaven with us. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.